Well, good morning again. Great to be here. Uh, my name is Derek. If I haven't met you, I would like to. So uh, grab me after, after church and say hi. I'd love to get to know you. We are uh, still kind of at, toward the beginning of a series that we just started a few weeks ago in the book of Colossians. So if you brought your Bible with you, you can open it up to Colossians. We are still in chapter 1, and we are really in one of the, honestly, one of the best places in the whole Bible. We get to hear Paul talk about who Jesus is and what he's done in a way that is almost unparalleled. So I tell you what, let, let's do this. Uh, if you are able, let's stand uh, in reverence for God's word and listen as I read to us from Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He, and the context here is the beloved son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us that the grass withers and fades, the flowers fade away, all of life does, in fact, but it's your word that stands forever. So we ask, Lord, now that it would stand before us, that we might kneel before it, that you might unstop our ears and soften our hearts and open our eyes that we might see you and see Jesus more clearly and in seeing might love him, might follow him, might serve him. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this passage, as I said, is really one of the, uh, one, one of the most famous in the Bible, one of the places that is kind of the go-to to figure out who Jesus is and what he's done. And, you know, oftentimes this is where we go as Christians to talk about that. But it's an interesting fact. Uh, there's a long history of scholarship that actually says that Paul actually might be doing the same thing. What I mean by that is the Apostle Paul wrote this as a letter to the Colossian church. And there are a lot of scholars that think he might be quoting here and quoting something that is kind of traditional material, like a creed or a quote or a hymn, kind of like I might quote something in a sermon. In fact, they oftentimes call this the Colossian hymn. We're familiar with hymns. We've already sung a couple in our worship service today, and we know oftentimes that hymns can be richly packed with beautiful truth that can kind of work its way into our hearts and our minds and our bodies so that we come to know and remember better who God is and how we are to love him and worship him. Now, hymns, you know, in this context didn't always have to have a musical setting. It's possible that this he's pulling from has a musical setting, but we're going to take a little bit of creative license here. And we're going to talk about this whole passage in terms of a song. 
and we'll modernize it a little bit for us. We'll think about it like a pop song with a chorus and with verses. And we're going to see exactly what Paul has to say to us through this beautiful song about who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's start with the chorus of our song. If we're looking at the chorus of our song, what is the thing that we kind of keep coming back to? Well, I think simply it's this, is that Jesus is a supreme and sufficient Savior. That's the chorus that we get to proclaim. Jesus is a supreme and sufficient Savior. This is the thing that you sing at the top of your lungs in your car when you don't think anybody's watching. This is the thing that keeps going on in the back of your head all day and you can't get it out of your head. This is the chorus, the thing that rings the truest, the simple, wonderful truth. Jesus is a supreme and sufficient Savior. So let's look at verse 1 now of our song. If Jesus is a supreme and sufficient Savior, what are we thinking about verse 1? Well, verse 1 starts really in the first verse that we read in the text, verse 15. And our first verse is actually about the word first. Listen to this in 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, we need to actually define that, first of all, by what it doesn't mean. It's helpful to, to start with that. What does he not mean when he says Jesus is the firstborn among creation? Well, I don't know if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door. Oftentimes, they will use this verse to show you that, look here, the Bible says that Jesus was a created being. See here? He's the firstborn. That means he was born first. God created him. He's not really divine. He's created. Jehovah's Witnesses are they're standing on a long tradition of what the church has called heresy, started by a guy named Arius in the fourth century, who had that exact interpretation. He said, you know, maybe Jesus really isn't God. Maybe Jesus is the best thing that God created. And the Council of Nicaea in 325 clarified that for us, showed us what it was for God to be Trinity, showed us what it was for Jesus to be of the same substance and nature as God, very God of very God, as the creed says. And they defeated Arianism, and they clarified for the church going forward, we should be really thankful for these guys, that Jesus is in fact not created thing, but the creator of all things. Of course, it's not just creeds and councils that we rely on for this. It's actually in this specific text. If you go down just a few verses later, Paul uses that same word again, firstborn from the dead. Well, it can't there mean that Jesus was the first to die, can it? Because he wasn't the first to die. It can't even mean that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead because that's not true either. Jesus himself raised Lazarus. So firstborn in this context means preeminent, worthy of first honor. The firstborn in both Hebrew and Greek society would have been the one that got most of the inheritance, the one that really kind of had most of the honor of the family placed on him. He's the one that carried the family name. He's the one that is given primary place. And so, so throughout the Bible, you actually hear this word used to describe that kind of primacy. In Exodus, God calls his people, Israel, my firstborn. In Psalm 89, God says of David and of the Davidic kings in the lineage and of the Messiah to come, he is my firstborn. What he's saying in all of these contexts is that the firstborn is preeminent, is primary, is supreme. So there's really the conclusion of our first verse. Jesus is preeminent over all things, as Paul says here later. He is primary 
He is supreme. As the firstborn, he governs it all. He owns it all. It all belongs to him. Remember our chorus? Jesus is a supreme and sufficient Savior. He is primary. He is preeminent. He is first and foremost above all. So how about verse 2 then? Well, we're going to kind of stick with this theme of supremacy. But there's another word in here that's really interesting, and it's this word image. In verse 15, he says that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, I don't know if that sounded weird to you when you read it, when you heard it, but there's a lot of irony in there, isn't there? How could you be the image of something that's invisible? (laughs) How could something that's invisible actually have an image? And that's actually exactly the point, is that Jesus reveals God to us. He is a revealer of who God is. If you don't take anything else from this part, take this. You cannot understand God without understanding Jesus. You cannot understand who God is without understanding who Jesus is. He is the lens that we have to look through if we are going to understand God. And that's really important for their context. Remember, they were being tempted to think there's something else out there that I have to add to Jesus in order for me to fully know God. Whether that's some sort of Greek mysticism, asceticism, or it's some sort of Jewish kind of festival or circumcision or Sabbath obeying or whatever it is, law keeping or mysticism, whatever it is, there's something else I've got to add in order to understand who God is. And what Paul is saying here is no. If you want to see God, you look to Jesus. That's really important for our context too. We live in a day and an age when spirituality is actually fairly popular. Christianity is fairly unpopular. Or the idea that, you know, I can know God just simply by taking a walk through the woods. I can know God just by meditating on things myself. I can know God by studying multiple religious texts. I can know God kind of on my own terms. And what Paul says here is really clearly, if you want to know who God is, you have to look through Jesus. You have to understand Jesus if you're going to understand God. But there's something else going on here, too, I think it's pretty exciting. So when you, when you even hear this, maybe you felt this when I read it. He is the image of the invisible God. Where else do we hear about image? Well, there's allusions here. I think things happening, maybe we can go back a little further into John chapter 1, where John is talking about the word, the logos, through whom all things were made. So we got Jesus and creation united here together. But if we go back even further, all the way to Genesis 1, what do we hear? is that mankind was made in the image of God. Mankind was made in the image of God. And if you combine Genesis 1 here and what Paul is saying about Jesus here in Colossians 1, what it seems to be saying is that Jesus is the original image after which mankind was created. That's kind of mind-blowing to me. So think about that, that when God created mankind, he actually looked to Jesus. In some way, he looked to the the pre-incarnate, eternal, beloved son to understand who humanity even was. So said another way, before Jesus became one of us, we actually became one of him. So not only are you to understand God more clearly by looking through Jesus, but you actually have to look to Jesus to understand humanity even. If you want to understand yourself This is where you start. And we continue to read that all of creation was created through him and for him. We sang that hymn, this is my father's world, right? That's true. Also what Paul was saying here is this is my brother's world. 
This is Jesus' world too, right? And so it all belongs to him. So if we want to understand creation, we also have to look through Jesus. It's like looking through a Jesus-colored lens to understand everything. Think about a painter who's painting a beautiful portrait. And he sits down to paint that portrait. And most portrait painters, they're going to have some sort of model, right? And so this painter is looking to the model to paint the beautiful picture. So Jesus is the model after which creation was formed. That illustration, of course, breaks down because it's too small to handle this passage because Jesus is not only the model, he's actually also the painter and, 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 and the, the picture belongs to him and it's all about him. He's over all of it. Remember our chorus? Jesus is a supreme and sufficient savior. He is not only firstborn over all, primary, preeminent over all, but he is actually the image of God. If we're going to understand who God is, if we're going to understand ourselves, if we're going to understand even our place in this world, we start with Jesus. He is primary. Third verse, really more about Jesus' sufficiency. So where do we see that? Well, let me just read to you again. I just want to see if you can kind of pick up on some, um, some repeated words or themes as I read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. <laughs> the word all is all over this passage. There is a sense of completeness and fullness just even in the language that's used here. As you listen to that and you kind of hear that rhythm, what you feel is that Jesus is complete and full. That everything about God and creation and life, it's all in him and he is expansive and full. I think one of the things that means for us is simply this, is that we don't have to go somewhere else looking for the things that we need. Remember, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And the reason for that is that we don't need anything else because Jesus is everything. There's a term in the psychological world uh, called chronic anxiety. And chronic anxiety used in that way is a little different maybe than the way that we think about anxiety. We're oftentimes thinking about what psychologists would call acute anxiety. That's, I've got a test tomorrow, so I'm anxious. Or like, I don't like getting up and speaking in front of people, so I'm anxious. Something like that. That's acute anxiety. Chronic anxiety is more of the kind of bubbling up kind. It's the kind where there are things that are happening in your life, and they're just starting to kind of make you anxious. They're starting to make you not okay. Uh, a pastor and author named Steve Cuss defines chronic anxiety as this, is that it's, it is a false understanding of something you need, that when you're not getting it, you get anxious. So the idea is, I think I need something in my life in order for me to be okay, in order for me to feel valued, in order for me to be kind of stable, in order for me to be secure. I think I need these things, and I'm there in danger now. I'm not getting them, or at least there's a threat that I might not get them. And so that increases the anxiety in my life. Now, that can be a number of things. It can be you're a leader of an organization, and the people who are supposed to be following you 
are actually rebelling against you and not following you. Anxiety rises. It could be you're just not getting the things in your life that you think make you happy, like the stuff that you think needs to make you happy. Anxiety rises. It could be that you look back on your life and you see, I don't see any success. I don't see the kind of success that I think that I need in order to be happy. And so anxiety arises. And what the gospel, though, says, and this is where Cuss is really helpful in saying, the, the, the way that we actually deal with our anxiety is not to deny it. It's not to just turn a blind eye to those things and say, you know what, I don't care about those things anymore. It's actually just the opposite, to recognize them for what they are and what they're doing in our hearts, and then instead of turning to them, to turn to Jesus, who is sufficient. To be able to say, the reason that I'm okay the reason that I can have a feeling of worth and value, the reason why I can actually be stable and secure rather than insecure, the reason why I can make calm decisions, the reason why I don't have to manipulate my way through everything to get all that stuff that I think I want, is that Jesus is all. He's sufficient. He's what I need. He's given me everything. He has washed me with his blood and dressed me in his robes. He has presented me righteous to God. He has called me his beloved son. He has united me to himself and has united me to God. What else could I ever need? I have what I need because Jesus is sufficient. Now, maybe you're sitting back and saying at this point, like, great. Supreme, sufficient. Jesus, Jesus, Sunday school answer, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I'm not feeling that. And honestly, when I open up Colossians and I read verse 1, right, where Paul says to the saints and the faithful brothers, like, I don't feel like a saint. And I don't feel like a very faithful brother. And we're here sitting in church, and honestly, I don't really want to be here. And I'm not very faithful at this anyway. And usually... When my anxiety triggers and rises, I usually turn to all that other stuff instead of Jesus. So what about people like me? What are we supposed to do? What are the, what are the unfaithful supposed to do? Well, I got good news for us. Listen again to these incredible words from verse 21 as Paul actually turns his attention from this tremendous, majestic proclamation of who Jesus is to now who we are and what we're supposed to do with it. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, the truth is that feeling of anxiety, that feeling of insecurity as we stand before the Lord, it's true in a lot of ways. Because as we stand before him without Jesus, we don't just stand as those who are not totally okay. Paul says here we stand as those who are hostile to him. Those who are running away from him as fast as we can. Those are, who are rejecting him with our full, the fullness of who we are. We are telling him, don't want any of that. I will have none of it. I'm running the other way. And what God has done is something incredible. Because he hasn't just helped those who help themselves. He hasn't just opened the door to those who came knocking. He has actually gone to find rebels who are hostile to him and have brought us to himself. That's what we read here in these verses, is that those who are hostile have become holy, washed clean, made right, 
holy before the Lord. Those who were belligerent have become blameless because of what Jesus has done and because of who Jesus is. Those who are antagonistic, antagonists in what we do and what we say have become above reproach because of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is the beautiful proclamation of what the church has for centuries called the gospel, the good news. The good news is that God saves sinners. God saves really hostile, belligerent, antagonistic people, people that don't care, people that really would like to have nothing to do with Jesus. God loves to save those people, people like you and people like me. And what a beautiful proclamation that is. So what do we do about it? That's really the fourth and final verse here in in our little song this morning. What do we do about it? Well, Paul tells us actually here as he finishes out these verses. In verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, have become a minister. A couple of things about that if that's in that statement there. And the first is that it, it's probably more about confidence than about doubt than it seems. So Paul is actually probably proclaiming more confidence than he is doubt. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this, that it's also probably a little harder than you think it is. It's probably a little more forceful than we would like it to be. Because the beautiful truth is, is that if Jesus has done this for us, if he is one who chases down the hostile and makes them holy, if he is the one who actually chases those who are running far away from him, if he is the one who owns all things and to everything, to everything to him belongs, if he has laid his life down for us and poured his blood over us to cleanse us, then friends, there's only one option for us, and that's to cling to him as tightly as we possibly could. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this in the message. He says, you don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. He's just saying, don't bail out. When you look around and it looks like it's hard, and it looks like life isn't going perfectly, and it looks even in the world like things may be falling apart, don't bail out. In our men's breakfast on Thursday, Wes Baker uh, told me this, this incredible illustration, I think, for this. He said, you know, think about this. You're, at, you're in a movie. Let's say it's a superhero movie. Let's say it's the new Spider-Man movie, okay? So you're sitting in whatever the new Spider-Man movie is that's going to come out, and you're sitting there, and what happens in this movie is the same thing that's happened in every other, you know, 5,000 Spider-Man stories that you've ever heard, is that there's going to be a time in the movie in which Spider-Man seems to be in real danger, Right? He's hanging over some cliff, or he's sitting, you know, strapped to a chair, and there's a bomb in the corner. Or it's either his life or the life of the people he loves, right? And it is dangerous, and everybody is just kind of on the edge of their seats, and they're, they're like gasping, you know, shortness of breath just a little bit, and, and unclenched fingers kind of on the armrest, because we all just know, like, man, what's going to happen? This is crazy. Now, think about if at that point in time, you decided to get up and leave, and thought, I guess Spider-Man's going to die. Not worth staying here, right? What a stupid movie. He's going to die. Let's go home and eat dinner. Call it a day. Of course you wouldn't do that. 
Because, like, the one thing that you know for certain when you walk into a Spider-Man movie is that Spider-Man's not going to die. He's going to win so that they can keep making Spider-Man's movies, right? He's going to be okay. He's going to find some sort of crazy way out of it, and everybody's going to cheer, and it's going to be amazing. You would never leave that part of the movie because, one, the movie's not over. And two, you know who's going to win. Paul was saying the same thing to Christians here. Don't bail out. Don't leave. Cling more tightly to Jesus because, A, the story's not finished. And, B, we're pretty sure we know who's going to win. Friends, that is what this song is really all about. The preeminent, primary, faithful, supreme, the sufficient, all-encompassing, expansive, beautiful Savior that we have in Jesus. Cling to Him. Hold to Him. Walk with Him. Follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, make this true in our hearts today. Let us, let us even just get just a little bit of this. A little bit of this big, beautiful proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done. If we could just get a drop of it, that would be beneficial. So that we might actually change who we are, so that you might change us by the power of your spirit. So we would cling to you, follow you, walk with you, proclaim your love, your mercy, and all that we do. Lord, do that even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.